0: Cara Ward is a Washington, D.C. attorney and member of Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. She focuses her practice on financial services in the housing finance market. She has experience with issues related to housing finance reform, consumer financial services, blockchain, and community economic development. Combining federal and private practice experience, Cara provides various financial service companies and trade group clients with policy analysis and strategic advice to advance their business objectives on Capitol Hill and in the executive branch. Cara frequently works on issues involving the U.S. House Financial Services Committee, U.S. Senate Banking Committee, U.S. Department of Treasury, and more. Meet the leaders shaping the new era of credit. This is Advantage Core Podcast. Today, we talk to Cara Ward, partner at Holland & Knight.
1: Part one. I grew up in a little town called Somerville, South Carolina, just outside Charleston, South Carolina. So I'm a little bit of a beach baby. I came North for college. I came up to Georgetown University and officially I majored in American studies. I spent three semesters abroad in England doing American studies, which was sort of interesting. And I also did a minor in justice and peace. Then I took a year off, lived in New York and came back to DC to do my law degree. And I went to George Washington for law. I was an executive editor of the international law review. So I ended up spending a lot of time thinking about international law. And I kind of laugh at myself a little bit at the time, because one of the things you do in law reviews, you write an article and you hope that it gets published, but sometimes it doesn't. And my article ended up being about piracy, which like literally like pirates on the sea <laughs> um, and how to establish jurisdiction to to arrest pirates. So I was thinking mostly about what was happening down in Somalia. And then later there was this movie that came out with Tom Hanks called Captain Philip. But at the time I was trying to like socialize this idea that we should care about the Somali pirates. And um everyone was like, what are you talking about? Like, are there like eye patches and parrots involved? I'm like, no, it's like a serious situation. But yeah, that was what I was thinking about in 2007, which was really interesting considering where I was like almost a year later in 2008, which is how I ended up with the eventually ended up at the U.S. Treasury Department. I was coming out of law school in um, May of 2008, right as the financial crisis was hitting. And I had a great offer in my pocket from a large law firm in New York. I'd done a summer in their satellite office in Boston. But just the idea of going to New York and being in a large law firm just did not appeal to me. And I stayed in D.C. and got a job at the U.S. Treasury Department thinking that I'd be doing work at what's known as the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, the CDFI Fund. And the idea was that it would be like the Grameen Bank for U.S. small businesses. Eventually, after getting there and being a young lawyer there, they were like, can you fog a mirror because we're going to put you on economic rescue programs? And I got pulled in very quickly to the to small business lending programs and then a bit on the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac bailouts and a variety of other kinds of tax credit programs that was not where I thought I'd be, but it ended up being exactly where I should have been because I liked it. I figured out I was good at it. My very first day at the U.S. Treasury Department was September 15th of 2008, which was the same day that Lehman Brothers failed. So I show up on the front steps of the Treasury Department with the briefcase my mom and dad gave me at law school graduation. And uh, I was like, "Who's taking me to lunch my first day at work?" And people are like running down the hallway, like crying and stressed out. <laughs> and they've been working, you know, for you know, one hundred two hours straight or something crazy like that. So I never had a normal day at the U.S. Treasury Department. I just thought it was always sort of in crisis. And by the time I was getting ready to leave, things had sort of in two thousand and twelve, things had sort of slowed down. And I was like, "This is kind of boring." Like what, are we, like, what are we doing today? Like, what's the emergency? They're like, no, no, this is normal. Like, everything's like sort of evening out, Kara. And I was like, I'm ready for more action. Like, get me busy. Like, I'm going to sleep on the floor in of my office at least twice this week. And they're like, no, that's not how this is supposed to work, Ward. So it was really, really interesting. And at the same time, at different times, a little bit scary. You know, I felt like a professional intruder because I was around very, very brilliant people. I was very, very junior, around very senior people. And so one of the most frightening things for me was that everyone else knew what they were doing and I didn't. So I was sort of felt like I was going to puke into my garbage can being like, they think I know stuff and I have no idea. I'm making this up. I'm copying things that I think are helpful and they think I wrote them and I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but So it was stressful and it wasn't until I got into private practice and maybe started to get some gray hair that I was able to appreciate that nobody knew what they were doing at the treasury department. And uh, because the times were so unprecedented, and while they had a lot of background and experience, like we were just we were at certain points making it up as we go, and I felt better about that. And just how it was like dog years back in the U.S. Treasury Department during those that time, like things were evolving so quickly that now, as things have slowed down over the last decade, you start to realize like what an important and thoughtful process needs to take place, but sometimes you don't have time for it. And then by 2012. I heard the siren call of of law firm life, of K Street, as they say, and left the federal government to go into private practice in big, big law firms. And that's where I've been since uh, 2012, big, big law firms doing this hybridized work between being a lawyer and being a lobbyist and being a policy wonk, but someone who understands how the federal government enacts programs or moves the ball or kind of does anything and how they interact with industry to pull that off. So I'm a partner at a big law firm called Holland and Knight, and my specialty is consumer financial services. And my clients are generally folks who are engaged and kind of work with the big money center banks and in financial services through housing or consumer retail banking. The sorts of things we keep in our wallet, student loans, credit cards, and regular lines of credit and deposit accounts, that's what I think about all the time. And my job is to help sort of um, be a translator and also a key like, strategic advisor to industry and major nonprofits as they think about what the rules should be, not where they are today, but what they need to be. And that comes in when there's a proposal or when the industry or or consumer behavior changes so much that the rules need to be updated. But it's legislation, it's regulation, and it's interpretive guidance that I sort of work in. And I know how to write it. My brain chooses the kind of garlic that understands what words are sort of magical that would need to be changed to adjust for an industry or a nonprofit's desire. And that's what I do. And whenever you try to change something in the federal government, there are bunch of stakeholders you have to know to be able to touch to get their approval. So even if it's a piece of congressional legislation, you want to make sure that the U.S. Treasury Department and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the housing advocates all understand what you're doing, socialize it, and sort of give it a stamp of approval in order for everyone to feel comfortable moving forward. And that's my job is sort of like get people together, socialize concepts, and make sure the words are right when it becomes law or regulation. When I think of traditional banking, I do think of the branch on Main Street that has the time and temperature outside the front that is often incorrect. (laughs) And I mean, that's really what I think of traditional banking, that there's um, a teller behind a little gate and then a couple of managers and offices. And you go sit down with a folder and they tell you whether or not you get a loan. And that's the traditional retail banking. And then the other kinds of traditional banking, like investment banking, I think of the scary recruiters who came down to Georgetown from like Goldman and Lehman and Merrill Lynch, and they were like, "Come work with us, make PowerPoint decks for ninety hours a, a week, and uh, we'll pay you handsomely, and we all get rich." And you know, that's what I think of traditional banking <laughs> on the investment side. Which is to say that I have very few clients that do either one of those things in my current practice. So I guess I'm an untraditional banking consultant or specialist or lawyer lobbyist. I think what came first was the ability for consumers to just know more or be able to to have more information to them. It used to be a magic. Nobody would know what Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac was unless they lived in the DC area and they like, you know, drove down into Tenleytown and saw Fannie Mae over there. And even then they may have thought it was a chocolate factory because <laughs> there's Fannie Mae chocolates that your grandmother usually had sitting around from Chicago or something. But you didn't appreciate like how all of the, the pieces fit together and you were just sort of like granted a loan. You know, like, do I get one? Like, may I have one, please? Yes, you may. But now with the internet and the ability for consumers to be a little bit more informed, like, you know, we start our home buying process online, whether it's like looking for a house through Zillow or Redfin, we also start to figure out, well, how much does a mortgage cost? And you can actually see that online. So I think that's been like one of the biggest transformations that has supported. Single family housing is that you can start to actually understand like the real numbers that apply to you thanks to online tools. The linkage to things like Credit Karma and Vantage Score, and the linkage to the banks that like the places that you provide that information, Nerd Wallet, Credit Karma, Vantage Score, all of those places that sort of help usher you through with your personal information to like create like a mortgage calculator. That seems like the single biggest support for single family housing that I've seen, at least in my generational experience. As we go forward, I think it's only going to be more where people are relying less on the sort of anecdotal experience or like family home training on how to get major financial products and are going to be significantly looking to teach themselves online from an app or from some sort of personal bot or advice that they get based on information that they are able to glean about their own personal account readiness for being mortgage ready. I think Zillow is almost there, right? (laughs) Where you can be like, I want this house. Maybe I'll go see it. Maybe not. And I'll start financing through this like buy here now. I mean, remember when it used to be crazy to buy stuff like from a catalog online and now you can just The number of things I buy off Instagram at 3 a.m. is sort of ridiculous. But like, it's just like click, like one click, like purchases. Yeah, I think that I I don't I think that's exaggerating the way that single family mortgages will go the most important or the largest financial transaction of your life. But um, I mean, we're getting closer where you don't have to go in on Main Street and talk to another human being and sort of wait to be permission to do it. You feel like you own it a little bit more when you're able to accomplish it online. There was a research study out of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that looked at consumer behavior in mortgages in particular about how often are consumers shopping for a mortgage? And the answer was really, really surprising. It was only like one in seven consumers like shopped around for mortgage rates. They sort of just like went to their bank or went to the place where they thought they'd qualify, got an interest rate or you know, got an offer and were like, oh, they're gonna give me one, I'll take it. And as I think about it, that's almost antiquated at this point, I would imagine that by the end of Covid, most people will have it would have completely flipped where only one in seven don't shop for a mortgage or aren't being marketed to one, especially in this refi boom. The number of consumers who have mortgages who all of a sudden are now aware of the fact that there's at least a dozen people who could give them a different offer is super interesting. I grew up in a little town in the south, Somerville, and it still had, what this old town had, which was like a right side of the tracks and the wrong side of the tracks. And the bank was on the right side of the tracks. And growing up like an Irish Catholic kid in in Somerville, South Carolina, I didn't think much of the privilege of that existence that I could walk into the bank and be served. But there are a lot of people in South Carolina and Somerville who did not go in to First National Bank of Somerville or whatever it was, or didn't have the sort of bank of mom and dad to give them advice about what they were trying to do. And the fintechs are getting to people thanks to their ability to to just reach the underserved markets digitally. Some of the fintechs that I find that are most interesting are the ones that are reaching into the underserved markets and finding ways to provide products that used to have to come from bricks and mortar folks. I'm thinking in particular about the new energy around this concept of earned wage advances. We used to call this payday loans or payday advances, and they were at terrifically exploitive interest rates. But now there's a new product that your employer is offering because almost everyone is doing automatic deposits of their paycheck, if you're regularly employed and banked enough to have a deposit account somewhere, that you can get the money as you earn it from your bank or from your employer too. I think that's an interesting product. I link that also when you think about the ability for consumers to have a linked account to things like the tax deductions or the tax checks that they're getting. One of the innovations is banks understanding and calculating like your earned income tax credit or your child care tax credit and making that money available to you incrementally over the year rather than in one lump sum. So it's available to help you through the peaks and valleys of your individual family circumstances. That's what's interesting to me about the way fintechs are serving the underserved. Globally, what's happened over the last 15 years is, you know, you have a phone, you have a you have a bank account. And in some places that aren't the United States, you have a phone number, you have a deposit account and that you don't need government IDs or a great deal of what we would say like things that create friction that keep a lot of Americans underbanked, like a social security number And documentation and like an active driver's license or a passport or something like that, that can be really prohibitive for a lot of Americans to be able to be fully banked or served by the banking system. But internationally, there's places where, you know, countries have deteriorated socially so much that there aren't government documentation and birth records. And the phone and a phone number are the best identification you can have and being able to just transact outside of fiat currency or it with fiat currency through your phone is super interesting. That's incredibly important in the refugee community because they often flee and then can't get the right documentation in the immigrant communities um, and refugee communities. You know, Can you imagine writing back to a country that's in the midst of a civil war and being like, um, can I get another copy of this birth record? And they're like, well, that building's been bombed. That's just not going to happen for you. So you just get stuck. And so what's interesting about fintechs is they've sort of filled that need and filled it in a non-exploitive way in some circumstances. In some circumstances, very exploitive. But in other circumstances, there's been an ability to just transact without borders and relatively securely. How has COVID-19 impact American unbanked households? I think it's put more pressure on those households to become banked. And the exacerbating issues in their lives that cause them to be unbanked or underbanked are only getting worse. So I don't think many families choose to be underbanked or unbanked. It's a circumstance where, you know, they've overdrawn accounts. They don't trust the banking system because of poor treatment and getting into COVID-19 feeling the, the stress of the economic impact of like losing a job and even insecurity in your own home and insecurity in your health has made the desire to be banked even higher, but the barriers to it still exist and they really haven't changed in COVID-19. Barriers are still things like having an identification, making sure that your social security number is still linked to you, and making sure that your ability to transact is able to happen in e-commerce or online. Everybody would like to be banked at this point, especially if you had to transact online and if you had a cell phone that was able to connect to broadband and you were able to, but also importantly, in order to take advantage of the stimulus checks the federal government was sending you. It's very difficult to obtain your check in a timely way or in a way that would be very helpful to your your current needs if you didn't have a bank account. So switching gears now into the Biden administration and housing finance, 2021 is still going to be characterized by COVID-19 response. And when it comes to housing, it's keeping people housed. So whether that's rental assistance, widely available rental assistance to help people who are falling behind and prevent eviction is going to continue to be a theme that I don't think we've seen the last of the checks from the federal government going to states to basically reimburse landlords for the residential tenants who have fallen behind. On the home ownership front, we saw that the Biden administration put $10 billion out to the states to help do foreclosure prevention and to help people be housed. That is going to look really interesting because it's money coming quicker than it did in the 2008 crisis, but also the drivers of foreclosures in 2008 are not what they are now. The drivers here are complete loss of income or collapse of the family balance sheet in a way that a new loan could keep a family in the house where back in 2008 the total collapse was that a new loan would only make things worse because you're already underwater in your mortgage there's less of that happening in today's market only also because home ownership is so tight folks who have job loss or job insecurity are still renters at this point especially if they're young because it's been home ownership has been locked out or access has been so limited due to the shortage of homes that are just available for young people to buy with the resources that they have for down payment and based on their income and size, you know, the traditional mortgage math is that you can afford a house. It's about four times your annual salary, but you start teasing that out. And you're like, well, minus your student loan obligations. And if you can find one, um, there just aren't any of those floating around. And if you can scrounge up enough of a down payment to make sure that it's affordable over a decent period of time.
0: The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of VantageScore Solutions. This podcast is brought to you by VantageScore Solutions, a higher level of confidence. Thanks for listening.